to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to crisis management, disaster recovery, business continuity, emergency response, and anything that can touch those realms. Uh, And as always, I like to mention if there's a subject you'd like us to talk about on the show, Uh, If you go to the show's webpage on the Voice America site, you can click on a button that sends me an email and you can tell me what you'd like to hear or if yourself want to be on the show, you you can let me know that as well. Or we'll try to find somebody to talk about the subject you want us to uh, touch on and we'll bring that person on. I'd like to remind everyone that I will be at the Disaster Recovery Journal Conference in Phoenix, Arizona, September 23rd to 26th. And on the 24th, September 24th, uh, Voice America and myself will be doing some live broadcasts. So uh, you'll get to hear us actually speak to presenters right away and co- uh, conference organizers and hopefully some uh, attendees as well and uh, share everybody's thoughts uh, live. And uh, just confirmed this weekend, I'm also going to be at the International Emergency Management Society, TEAMS, 25th Anniversary Conference in Manila, Philippines. Uh, November 13th to 16th. So we'll do the same thing there. Hopefully we can talk to uh, some presenters and uh, really get some uh, different perspectives uh, over in Philippines on uh, emergency response and business continuity. I've mentioned in the past uh, that I attended in May the Continuity and Resilience Today conference. Uh, Great conference and met a lot of great people and spoke to some of the presenters and asked them if they'd be interested on being on the show. And today's guest is one of those presenters. His topic was cybersecurity and crisis management, lessons learned from integration. So I thought that was an interesting topic, and there were some really good things that uh, I thought he brought up. So I hopefully we remember what those are and talk about them here today. But I'd like to welcome to the show uh, Douglas Grant. Douglas, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, again, uh, you had a great uh, topic you know, on the uh, at the conference, so uh, you know, I'm really happy to have you here. Uh, can you give us a you know a short bio of yourself? You know what you you do right now, and and how you got into the emergency response uh, business continuity realm. Sure. Um, so I've been involved in emergency management for about ten years now. Um, I actually started as an Army reservist, and my first experiences in the area were doing um, major exercises related to aid to civil power. So if you think of kind of the military's response to a major natural disaster in Canada, that was really my first involvement in this kind of area. And um, once I got out of the military, I decided it was something that I wanted to focus my career on. So I ended up doing the um, undergraduate degree in emergency management from York University, Uh, Followed that with a master's degree in emergency management from railroads, and I took a job with Atomic Energy of Canada um, after Fukushima. So it was at a time when the organization was really trying to implement a number of lessons learned from that event. 
So it was an opportunity for me to go in and implement a number of kind of emergency management programs with a nuclear organization. Um, since then, I've been working with a company called Callion, where I'm one of the senior emergency management consultants. So we do emergency management projects for government, uh, critical infrastructure, private industry across Canada. Can I ask what attracted you to the you know this kind of industry? What, what was it that kind of stood out for you? Um, I think it had a strong overlap with my kind of military background. And when, uh, when I was in the military, I actually had um, a career-ending injury. I, uh, I tore a bunch of the ligaments in my ankle. And I was looking for something that was still kind of involved in public safety and security. And I, I kind of remembered my experiences with those aid to civil power domestic exercises and thought this would actually be a really good fit given that background. Oh. I always like to hear how people get into the industry. It's so interesting to hear the different uh, backgrounds. So let's yeah, there's no more. one way to do yeah. it. No, no, it, there's. It seems to just be a very, very wide spectrum here. So let's get started into you know your talk at uh, CRT. The cybersecurity, for it's relatively a new new term. You know, can you define what that is for us? Uh, well, first of all, I would probably have to say that there's uh, more technical people who would do a better job than me, but my personal definition of it is examining how an organization can protect its both critical assets um, and its kind of property, both physical and intellectual, from an unwanted intrusion by any kind of external um, power or any kind of external attacker. So there's obviously a number of um, aspects of that that uh, that fall under different areas. My personal focus within emergency management has always been if some kind of a major disruption happens, you know, that's not simply related to, um, you know, a loss of a low-level income or something like that, if mm -hmm. an intrusion actually has such like an extreme impact on an organization that it poses a direct risk to people, that's been my kind of personal focus to cybersecurity. Okay. And uh, so what's the current state of cybersecurity? You know, um, how, how does it stand right now? Overall, at least in my personal experiences, dealing with a lot of different organizations who deal with things like critical infrastructure, the current state is that, like you say, it is a new field. It's something that's starting to be understood, but there are a number of challenges with integrating cybersecurity into those kind of business continuity, disaster recovery, emergency management frameworks that a lot of organizations do have in place. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a number of reasons for that, but I think that one of the major ones is just that as you say, one, it's a newer field, and there's not a lot of understanding at different levels of the organization about specific methodologies that go into effective cybersecurity. Do you think that maybe some of these existing industries like emergency response, business continuity, uh, IT, DRP, they can help contribute to build you know, cybersecurity industry and really help refine it so it does become a lot more uh, better understood? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the things that I think that um, resilience practitioners overall focus on is building connections between various parts of an organization. I think that's really where one of the challenges is right now. A lot of organizations that are focusing on cybersecurity are still having it kind of operate in isolation. There's not those connections to the other parts of the organization that may have expertise that can help cybersecurity practitioners respond to an incident 
as a whole or as an entire organization. It's still being done very much in a kind of in a, in a focus that's away from the way that the organization would handle other kind of disruptions like business continuity disruptions. Is that really because it is so new or because people don't really want to add another piece to this, you know, very big, you know, focus, you know, there, you know, emergency response, disaster recovery, privacy concerns, you know, business continuity, and now another one, you know, cybersecurity. That's actually a really interesting point. Um, I would say that I think that that certainly factors into it. Um, but from what I've seen so far, at least the, the issues surrounding or sorry, around cybersecurity in terms of, you know, privacy concerns and those kind of things are really secondary just to the idea that, you know, people don't understand what an intrusion in terms of cybersecurity actually is. It's easy to understand a fire or a flood or, you know, an explosion or a conventional emergency like that. Mm-hmm. And there's systems in place that are fairly widespread that focus on those kind of disruptions. But if you were to ask the average employee, you know, talk me through what exactly a cyber intrusion looks like, for the most part, they're not really going to have a solid understanding. And even as a resilience practitioner myself, you know, cybersecurity is not my primary focus. I can help organizations leverage existing parts to deal with an overall response or an overall intrusion. But if you actually ask me to walk you through the minute technical details of that, that's not going to be something that I have a strong understanding of. So if you have organizational leaders who are trying to develop some kind of a cybersecurity capacity, if Mm -hmm. they're not really understanding the most kind of fundamental concepts of it, it's going to be challenging for them to make sure that they're developing a system that responds effectively to these disruptions. So they could be relying on uh, people within their organization you know, for this expertise who themselves may not have all the the skills and knowledge about it because it's so new and all the different pieces out there. Right. I think that's a good point. And um, if you look at a lot of organizations that have, you know, an actual emergency management capacity right now, a lot of them are under like a health, safety, security, and environmental program, uh, HSSE, or some variation of that. If you Mm -hmm. think about how different environmental management is from security, it's going to be tough to have a manager or a director who's in charge of all of those different aspects, who has a really strong understanding of each one of those disciplines. You know, ideally, the organizations are going to have specific managers who are in charge of each one of those aspects that report to an overall manager, but you can't really guarantee that. So if you have, you know, that kind of cybersecurity framework that's put under a portfolio with a number of different aspects in it, I think it becomes increasingly challenging to make sure that leadership who are responsible for that have a strong understanding of the actual details of that. So with with corporate leadership or organizational leadership, where would you think the cybersecurity is the best fit? Uh, obviously, I would assume under the uh, IT side, but any anything specific or would that kind of stand alone, you know, on its own? I don't think there's anything wrong with having cybersecurity under an IT function. I think the issue is that that specific function needs to be incorporated in planning and decision-making at the other parts of the organization that are going to be dealing with response as well. So there's nothing wrong with having IT responsible for cybersecurity and a different part of the organization responsible for emergency management or business continuity. However, 
if you do that, you need to make sure that those functions can still communicate. In a lot of cases, if they're spread out in different parts of the organization like that with you know, different managers, um, different uh, focuses happening on their day-to-day business, it's less likely that they're going to communicate. And I don't just mean in an emergency. I mean they're less likely to communicate in actual kind of planning and design activities like that. So if you are going to separate them, you know, that's okay, but there needs to be a real effort put into place to make sure that all these different parts are talking to each other. Do you have suggestions on how we could do that for organizations? Because I've been in places too, and they have all these different areas. You know, this group looks after emergency response, and this one looks after business continuity. This one does IT recovery. Do you have suggestions on how to kind of bring those together, even if they are, you know, separate entities? How can you, you know, build the bridges, so to speak, between them? I think exercises are a great way to do that. And I don't just mean, you know, kind of large-scale, complex exercises, but having an ongoing program with activities that allow these different stakeholders to get together at a lower level first and think through fundamental issues. So, for example, if I run an exercise, the first one that I do where I talk to, you know, cybersecurity and emergency management at the same time, That's not going to be a complex, realistic simulation with actors and things like that. It's going to be a lower-level tabletop where we're just talking about our most fundamental processes. Can we talk to each other? Can we communicate with each other? You know, even if it's something just as simple as, do these different functions know who in the organization is responsible for this? You know, do they know how to get them on the phone? While that Mm -hmm. seems extremely low-level, you know, starting off with those kind of activities at least prepares you to have some kind of a coordination in effect when you actually are responding to an event. Now, certainly over time, I would suggest increasing the complexity of that. So ideally looking at a program that looks at kind of three to five year cycles, gradually increasing complexity, gradually bringing in more stakeholders in the organization. I think that is probably the best way to start establishing those bonds. But overall, it really needs to begin with just communication as well and talking to each other and figuring out both, one, what are your problems? And two, how do you respond to these problems just among yourselves? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that makes sense. You know, we're going to get into some of the teams, uh, you know, and, and integration and incident management stuff in the next segment. But you you touched on the communications. That's pretty basic, right? You, you know, understanding what each other does. That. It, cybersecurity it sounds so complex, but you know, it comes to getting everybody working together, it comes down to communication, which is one of the most basic things there is. Yeah, absolutely. And if that works, well, then you know, hopefully you can move forward and create uh, better, stronger teams, which we'll touch on again shortly. <laughs> right. So, with cybersecurity, uh, you know, are are there any kind of um, I'm trying to set the stage into the next next segment here. So, uh, you know, skills or kind of people that, uh, you know, need to be involved or specific equipment that kind of gets involved with cybersecurity? Uh, in terms of specific equipment, I'm probably not the best person to ask about yeah. that. If you're asking about specific people to get involved, I think you mm-hmm. really do need to get uh, the senior management in terms of the overall decision makers involved and especially at the kind of higher executive level. And when I say get them involved, what I really mean is that they need to understand how the organization as a whole should respond. Because, you know, if you have this structure in place about, you know, exactly laying out how the organization is going to respond to a flood or a business continuity outage and stuff like that, 
and then you kind of throw that all out the window because cybersecurity hasn't been engaged in that, that I think becomes very problematic. So just getting people at the top to understand that, you know, these are all different parts of a whole. There is a structure in place that ideally will let the organization respond effectively as a group or as an entity. And it's important to have that same process for any kind of disruption, not just for physical threats like floods. Okay. Well, on that, we're gonna, we've are gonna we come to the end of our first segment. We're talking with Douglas Grant, and we're talking about cybersecurity and crisis management. Lessons learned from integration. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. We're talking with Douglas Grant and uh, his uh, CRT presentation that was really uh, well-received called Cybersecurity and Crisis Management, Lessons Learned from Integration. Uh, Douglas, before we went away on the uh, the first segment, um, something just kind of jumped in my mind. I was wondering about getting your thoughts on uh, change management and project management because uh, I know we were touching base on you know cybersecurity being new and you know integrating all these different groups uh, components together. And I'm wondering getting your thoughts on those two areas because if something gets through one of those areas that you know cybersecurity, for example, doesn't know about, 
you know, it could cause a lot of problems. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts would be on, you know, integrating with those areas. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And uh, that's actually something that I bring up frequently when people ask me about um, lessons learned from other emergency management product projects. Um, so the reality is that a lot of the conventional training programs for emergency managers that are in place right now, so if you went to school at kind of a university or college level to take emergency management, they really don't focus on project management. And over time, I've come to see that I think that's, one, a critical flaw in the training programs that are available right now, and two, that having an effective project management plan is really going to be one of the major aspects that determines whether you're going to be successful or if you're going to fail. Um, so if you look at the types of change management plans that are happening right now for emergency management, you know, especially if you have an organization that really has not done this a lot before, just the amount of change and disruption and complexity that implementing an emergency management system can um, can cause can be extremely difficult for many organizations to endure. So um, if you think about what emergency management, and I keep saying emergency management, I really mean that in the sense of any kind of resilience program. So business mm-hmm. continuity, crisis management, emergency management, they impose a new structure on an already existing organizational structure. So it's almost like you take what you have in place in an organization now, and you then say, okay, if something bad happens, we're going to take everything that you do on a day-to-day basis and do something completely different. And for a lot of organizations, like that's just not realistic, I think. Um, so having a project management plan where and a change management plan where, one, you clearly identify what the end state of this initiative is and what the objectives are, and then follow that with an extremely detailed, logical plan of deliverables, timelines, you know, budget. I think that's really getting to be the point, or sorry, getting to be the only way that you can actually accomplish this in broader organizational terms. Um, because I certainly have seen it where that stuff is not in place, and the mm-hmm. result is that these programs are never as effective and never really get to the point where people want them to be. And even if you do get them you know, where you want them to be, uh, and I've seen it happen, you know, somebody comes along, makes a change somewhere, or you know, a new project comes along and makes uh, changes to you know, configurations and things like that. And before you know it, you've got problems and all of a sudden you, all your disaster teams are now initiated. You know, you've opened yourself exactly. up to, you know, expo- exposure, you know, uh, I think is the term everyone uses. Yeah. You know, and that just and causes I, I actually problems. just wanted to make one more point about that. Um, a lot of the activities that take place in emergency management right now, they're done in a way that um, focuses on the relationships that you build in the fields, so the relationships you build with other stakeholders. And I certainly think that's important, and I think that's a critical aspect But at the end of the day, you know, exactly like you're saying, you need something that's a backup. You know, it can't just be as simple as, hey, we said we're going to do this and we'll do our best because exactly, you know, things change and other priorities come up. At least if you have some kind of a detailed project management plan, if there are other disruptions that happen or other priorities that do come up, ideally you'll at least have something that you can fall back on and say, okay, are there, can we still implement this with some changes or can we push the, the deadlines back? But, you know, if you're not having those kind of structures in place and you're just kind of saying, well, we're going to do this and we're going to, you know, do it in a way where everybody is kind of doing it in their free time, I just don't think that's going to be successful. 
No, <laughs> I've seen it happen and I know it's not. <laughs> so let's move to the next part, the incident management system. Now, what do you mean by that? What should it include, you know, uh, and all its uh, various characteristics? Because this was one section of your presentation I that really grabbed my attention because there was a lot of good uh, bits of inf information in here. So um, let's start off with, you know, defining what is an incident management system. So an incident management system is the term that's used in a lot of different organizations for essentially the structure and the organizational chart for how they're going to respond to disruptive events. And it's based on the idea that, you know, an emergency or a disruption is not day-to-day -day business, and it requires a separate structure than what is used for kind of those daily operations. You know, it requires mm -hmm. something that's a little bit more agile and nimble. Um, the exact definition varies. That's one of the problems of this. When we think of incident management system, especially in the context of some of the doctrine from places like the, uh, the Disaster Recovery Institute, a lot of it is referring to the incident command system. Now, incident management system technically is kind of a catch-all term for a number of different similar systems that focus on the incident command system as the foundation. And the incident mm -hmm. command system was initially a structure that was developed in response to wildfires in the state of California back in the 60s, I believe. And it was taking this idea that for major events where um, you're looking at kind of cross-boundary or cross-border incidents that require a huge number of different stakeholders to get involved in, there needs to be a specific structure on that that focuses specifically about how all these different pieces can function together. Now, that started to be seen as a best practice in a lot of organizations. The issue, I think, is that the incident command system especially, it requires a lot of organizational features and characteristics to be successful. And it's being pitched because there's not really a lot of other stuff out there. There are some competing systems like uh, gold, silver, bronze police model. But in North America, mm -hmm. for the most part, it's the incident command system. Now, you're seeing a lot of the stuff out there saying that you need an incident management system to respond to emergencies. Fair enough. I would agree with that. But the incident command system is not going to be a great fit for everything because it's very focused on municipal-level first responders. And if you look at the average organization that needs business continuity, it doesn't really have most of the features in place that you would find at a municipal first response agency. Mm-hmm. So what what you you mentioned uh, specific characteristics and components? What can you give us some examples of what what those would be? Sure. So uh, standardization is huge. Um, so the idea that um, all different aspects of the organization that are performing a role perform it in exactly the same way. Um, having chain of command or an effective chain of command that clearly outlines who is a decision maker. Um, transfer of command, so the way that one decision maker steps back and briefs in another one to come and take over that same role. Um, management by objectives, so making sure that your organization is responding to the most pressing kind of issues first. Um, having effective information management, for example, so how is the organization both taking in information and sending it out to other stakeholders. So there's a number of features and principles that make the incident command system effective 
but there's a number of features as well that make it more suited to those kind of first response agencies. So, for example, if you're taking incident command training, much of it is going to focus on the bureaucratic structure of ICS. So it's a very documentation-heavy system. And a lot of that documentation is just not really a great fit for, like, a bank, for example. So, mm-hmm. you know, let's say that a bank wants to implement ICS and they want some ICS training. Suddenly, half of that training is talking about, um, you know, how do you requisition um, aircraft to go and put out a fire? You know, that is a structure that's not really appropriate for a bank and is not really a great fit for an organization that doesn't have first responders. So Mm -hmm. there are ways to adapt that system and implement it. If you just look at those kind of core features about, you know, we're going to do everything the same regardless of who is in the room. We're going to have a structure for sharing information and for um, conducting different kind of briefings and handovers. Those can be effective for an organization. But if you start talking about implementing core ICS in like, you know, an IT organization or a financial organization, that's going to result in a number of issues where you have that kind of culture shock and you're giving them an approach and a toolbox of things that they're not always going to fully understand. You know, especially if you don't have that advanced subject matter expertise in this kind of a system to guide that implementation. Well, I I remember working at one place, they had uh, one um, incident response, you know, crisis management team, I forget their actual term that they use. Um, And they had one team, you know, and it was made up of lots and lots of people. But depending on what the situation was, not everybody needed to be involved. So and they right. had, you know, we had we had a a four one one, which they called you know just like up here in Canada. I don't know about the rest of the world, but if you dial four one one here, it's information. So they right. if it's, something happened, you know, didn't need to activate everybody. It was a four one one, and everyone was just kept in the loop. If it escalated to something worse, it became a nine one one, you know, and that's the mm-hmm. number um, that everyone over here calls for emergencies, you know, uh, and that would involve different people. Uh, but all the roles and responsibilities were all the same, you know, uh, and it fit to exactly what, what they needed. They just, you know, had one process, but not everybody needs to be involved with every situation. Right. You know, so I have a question for you. Why should I implement ICS? What would be some of the reasons uh, that I, I would want something like that? Well, The reasons to implement it is that you can have an effective structure that essentially minimizes the disruption and the unforeseen aspects and the chaos that follow a disruption. So, you know, having a system in place that clearly defines who is doing what in the organization, how they're going to talk to each other, how they're going to share information both internally and externally, how they're going to manage the bureaucratic side of things, so, you know, paying for things and uh, securing equipment, you know, having a logical structure that is not day-to-day business that allows you to be faster and more nimble, those are all reasons why you would want to implement the incident command system. But I would say or caution, however, that, you know, the question is, do you need the incident command system in its original um, original structure that's designed for wildfires? Or do you just want to take a variation of that system that uses that kind of toolbox approach that takes some of those key structures and key features and apply that to your organization? So it depends on what kind of organization you are, but for the most part, I would probably say that 
implementing it as originally envisioned is probably not a great fit. Implementing a system that allows you to take some key features of that and impose some order on the chaos of a response is probably a better idea. Okay. Uh, is there uh, any reasons why I would want to? Let's go the other side. You know, if those are some of the reasons that could imp- imp- uh, impede me, so to speak, you know, are, are there reasons why, um, you know, if I looked at it and go, hey, this has got all this stuff, you know, all these communication channels, it's got all these rules and responsibilities and everything. Are there challenges with bring, putting that together? You know, are there uh, yeah. things that, you know, like, oh, all those challenges, you know what, that's not a good fit for me because of these reasons. Uh, sorry, can you say that again? You're kind of cutting off a little bit there. Oh, sorry. Um, it, it, with all these different uh, aspects of ICS, I could be happy with, with what I see. Oh, it's got all these communication channels. It's got all these different processes in place. But these are the challenges that I'm facing to do that. So, you know, is it a good fit for me? Like, is there anything that I should be aware of that would say, you know what, if I need, you know, uh, 10 years to put this together, is that really what I need? Like, is there a, 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 a list of things that people can look at and kind of say, hmm, you know, that doesn't really fit for me because of this? Well, well, I've created my own kind of list. I would say one, in, one of the challenges that exist out there is that, um, and you raise a good point, there's really not a lot of guidance for how to implement this. Um, if you went and looked at kind of the source material, there isn't those kind of check marks about, you know, do you have this, this, and this? Well, then ICS is great for you. I would say, from my own personal experience, the checklist to me would be, you know, do you have actual dedicated tactical response resources? So by that, I mean people who are those kind of boots on the ground responders. And I don't mean that you need to have, you know, your own industrial fire brigade or your own internal security force. But do you actually have physical response type people who are going to be carrying out the minute details of fixing the problem, not just providing that kind of strategic direction? Um, one of the major ones, obviously, is do you have a regulatory requirement? You know, there are places now that are starting to have regulatory requirements that either um, force the implementation of ICS or strongly suggest it but are not quite at the point where they're saying you must have this. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have the resources for lots of training and exercises? You know, you, you gave the example before of um, a disruption in an organization where they had a lot of people who were coming into the room and getting involved. If you think of all the people in an organization who could be involved in a disruption, do you have the patience and the time and the resources to provide effective training for all of those people? And by effective training, I don't mean, you know, a one-day session. You're probably mm-hmm. looking at overall, you know, a couple of weeks total for every single one of these people as well as an ongoing commitment to additional training and exercises. Um, do you have staff that have enough experience with this system to provide expertise? Uh, one of the issues that I've seen a lot of is that organizations will try to implement this. They're, they're kind of looking at the doctrine and the materials that are in place, but there's nobody there to give them advice or to provide some guidance about what they could actually expect day to day. So if you don't have those kind of things, or if you do have some of those things, those to me would be the ideas about like why you may want to, to implement the system. Like if you do have regulatory requirements, if you do have all those mm-hmm. resources, if you do have people who can provide that guidance, 
the system is probably going to work for you, or at least you'll be able to establish a structure or a variation of it that will be successful. If you don't have any of those things, then I would say that it's probably not a good fit for you. Well, I like your comment uh, uh, about the one-day training session. You know, a, a one-day, you know, one-hour type thing. That That's just an awareness session. That's not training. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And uh, one thing that I've seen recently as well is that, you know, if you if you look at the core training programs that exist right now, to get somebody from um, fresh off the street to, you know, at least certified up to the higher levels of incident command, you're looking at about five days, you know, and five days of training, well, that doesn't really seem like a lot. I remember one uh, one event where we had the management team of an organization in the room, and if you're thinking about like everybody in the room being a director or a senior manager for five days straight in training, you know that's a lot of salary that you're putting into training. Um, yeah. So if if you have you know twenty, thirty, forty, fifty people like that who need this kind of training, you know, and it almost ties back to the project management plan. You know, just keeping track of that much salary can be a bit of a sticker shock for a lot of organizations. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a good point to end on for our sec- second segment. We're talking with Douglas Grant, uh, Cybersecurity and Crisis Management, Lessons Learned from Integration, and we'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river. Like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. 
Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. We're talking with Douglas Grant, uh, Cybersecurity and Crisis Management, uh, Lessons Learned from Integration. And Douglas, in the last segment here, I'd like us to talk about um, uh, the operation cycle. Uh, you had a great uh, chart, uh, if I recall, on the, um, the conference, and you called it the planning P. Uh, I remember the graphic. Can you kind of walk us through what you know, building an operation cycle is and what it contains? Sure. So full disclosure, the planning P is uh, one of the basic components of ICS. Um, it's one of the things that everybody who takes ICS training would be exposed to. And um, it's really the structure that ICS imposes upon an emergency management operation. So one thing that I think is kind of interesting is that when I had put it into my presentation, it was really, to me, kind of an afterthought, but I had a couple of people come up to me afterwards, and they were really blown away by it, and they were kind of saying, like, wow, I can't believe you thought up this amazing idea or this amazing structure, and I was kind of thinking to myself, you know, like, well, one, I didn't think this up. This is you know, a very widely used emergency management methodology, but two, it kind of demonstrates that the things that are just fundamental day-to-day work for people in you know, resilience and continuity are is probably not really familiar to a lot of people who are focused on areas like cybersecurity or IT. And having all these people from those more kind of IT-focused disciplines at this conference look at this and say, wow, this is really great, I think really shows that, you know, we do need to do a better job of communicating with each other and bringing organizations, or sorry, all parts of an organization into a cohesive framework. So... The idea of the planning P is that a response operation should be cyclical. So if you just think of the letter P, the little stick on it, there's a couple of activities that should take place during the initial hours of an incident or disruption. And those are kind of those first notifications, um, getting everybody in the room together, making sure that the proper stakeholders are informed of the situation. But once everybody has actually assembled in either the decision-making center that an organization would have, like the physical space, or any kind of like a virtual center where people can just communicate and respond effectively over distance, the flow of activities should really be cyclical. And it's easy to overlook that when you're actually in some kind of a response. And especially if you're kind of an outsider, everything just seems like chaos. But there's actually a flow of activities And the first is kind of to develop your overall strategic approach about how you're going to respond to a disruptive incident. So different versions of the planning P go into a different level of depth about this. But overall, if you're just kind of like an organization that's not heavily focused on emergency management, I would just say that the first thing that you're going to do is figure out in broadest terms how you should actually respond in terms of like what you want to accomplish. So if there's a fire, the first thing that you're probably going to think of is, well, we need to put out the fire or we need to, you know, get everybody out of the building. So you're not really jumping in and focusing on, you know, all of these detailed actions just yet. You're just starting to get your head wrapped around the kind of broad strokes. So mm-hmm. as you go around, along the cycle, you start going in a little bit further depth. 
So while an organization that I've worked in before, like a nuclear power plant, may have those response resources to actually go in and put out the fire independently, you know, if you're a bank, for example, it could be as simple as saying, well, you know, the first thing we're going to do is alert the authorities to how we're actually, and they're going to actually come in and deal with that event. Depending on what the nature of the disruption is, you may be able to respond to it independently, or you may not be able to respond to it independently. If you look at something like an actual cybersecurity intrusion, you know, in broadest terms, it would probably be something along the lines of, you know, we want to stop the intrusion. Well, then you start thinking about how you're actually going to do that in terms of the more operational details. Well, we have an IT department with cybersecurity practitioners. We need to get them mobilized. They need to, you know, get into work. We need to get them into a situation or into a space where they're capable of actually responding to the disruption. And we need to figure out what they need. So earlier you had asked me if there's any kind of specific equipment that would be needed to respond to a cybersecurity uh, disruption. Mm -hmm. So I don't know the answer to that, but maybe the cybersecurity practitioners do, and they realize that we need a piece of equipment to do this. So the next Mm -hmm. thing you should be focusing on is how would we actually secure this equipment or how would we bring in the resources that people need to deal with this? When you go a step further beyond that, it probably looks like, well, the cybersecurity practitioners are going to need to spend at least an hour figuring out the sort of the, the source of the intrusion. They're going to do that by doing X, Y, and Z. And mm-hmm. in order to support that, they need to get this piece of equipment. So at that point, you have kind of a rough plan. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not a particularly detailed plan, but you at least understand what you need to be doing for the next little bit of time. In the hardcore emergency management world, that would be called an instant action plan. You don't necessarily need to call it that as part of an operational cycle, but now you've assent, you've talked to all the stakeholders in the room and you've figured out what your direction is going to be for the next period of time. So next you would essentially say, how much time do I need to get this into place? If you're in the early stages of an operation, I would say it's probably a short period of time. So you need like an hour, for example. You then spend the rest of that hour actually executing that plan and trying to get into place all of the details that you've identified as needing to take place. And then once that's complete, you can evaluate and say, do I still need to do additional things, or has this plan worked? If you're still at a point where you need to get the work done, and the practitioners themselves just need more time to address the task, then you just go into another cyclical period, and around and around you go until you actually either solve the problem, or you realize that your plan isn't working and you need to adjust. So that's really what an operation cycle is. It's the idea that there's a series of structured activities that take place as opposed to just kind of a constant melee of getting all of these different stakeholders together. I, I like how you, you mentioned, you know, people, uh, the, the cybersecurity people, they have to go away for an hour and do whatever it is they do, X, Y, and Z, you know, for one hour. Right. Um, and it, it, it helps identify, you know, if these people are doing this, don't bug them. Don't be asking right. for more updates from them, you know, or you're just delaying it. You know, you're, you're, and I guess that would come out of uh, a strong leader or, you know, roles and responsibilities to not do that. You know, so someone takes control of it. Yeah. And I, I think that's a hugely important piece of the puzzle. So in advance, having a cybersecurity program that's implemented into a broader continuity framework where we're saying that we as an organization have the discipline 
to give people the resources they need to fix the problem, but then let them go and do the work to do it. So there's a time to talk about things and to plan, but after a while, you just need to step away and let practitioners do what they need to do. So if they come back after an hour and say, you know, this is not working, like we can't do this with the equipment we have, or even if it's just something as simple as, you know, we need food or we've been working for two days straight and we need more people to come in, you know, at that point, you can re-examine your plan and come up with something new. But mm-hmm. if you come up with this idea of, you know, this person's going to do this, this person's going to do this, you need to actually step away and let them do it. Because the more time you spend bugging them and, you know, asking them follow-up questions, that takes away from their ability to get the job done. And, and just to clarify, you know, what stepping away, you're not stepping away from the incident. You're stepping out of the way of the people who need to, to do what they need to do. Because I know someone's exactly. going to say something and send me an email about that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You're just having the discipline to let people work and not bug them every five minutes to see if the situation has changed. Yeah. So, you know, would the same thing occur during exercises? Would you would that be the best way to do it as well? Or would would it be more hypothetical? You know, okay, you're going to be doing this for an hour, you know, or would you actually kind of you know, simulate it, you know, make people wait for an hour and, you know, and see what happens and you know, what really goes on in the background? <laughs> um, it, it depends on the type of exercise. I would say that the approach that you've just outlined is the way I would ideally like to see it done. Um, and it certainly does that happen that way in some larger scale exercises that take place over 24 or 48 hours. You know, there's going to be peaks and valleys of activity. The issue that I've seen in some places is that they do exercises so rarely and they don't have enough resources to do them, you know, in kind of real time that you'll get, um, you know, a half day exercise where they're trying to simulate a week of stuff happening. So the result of that is that you don't have that time to kind of step away and let people work and people are just getting new injects, new events happening all the time. When you take that approach, I think that really is kind of a limiting factor because it doesn't allow people to get that discipline of stepping away because it just generates too much chaos. Well, I guess that would be uh, like information overload. You know, you're exactly. sitting, you know. sitting there and people are throwing scenario af- af- you know, at each other and all, all this and that going back and forth, but nobody's really investigating anything there. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, um, you know, I've certainly seen some exercises where you have people who, because it's that information overload, you know, they have like one phone in each hand and both of them are up to their ear and they're trying to listen to two people at the same time. It's it's kind of difficult to wrap your head around. But in my opinion, the best exercises are those kind of slow and steady. And they challenge people and let people work through problems. But if you're just kind of shotgunning information at them like that, they never really get that chance to actually investigate and figure out the best way to do things. Well, they, and, and at the same time, you know, when you do have these various groups, you know, you mentioned quite a few, they need to step back and say, what's our plan? You know, especially if something new does crop up, you know, you give an example where a team says, you know, we need more people. Well, you know, or more time then what are all the other teams going to do in the in the meantime? They have to be able to step back and, you know, um, I don't want to say replan, but say, okay, what does this mean to us? Right. And those people, I think, actually don't get exercised enough. So, 
if you have mm. you know, one kind of big event and you let those people step away and think about it, and maybe you have like a couple of small changes, yeah, they can adjust on the fly. If you just have that kind of like every two minutes something new is coming up, you know, you're right. The plan just changes constantly. You never actually get to focus on the plan. And I'm not sure how realistic that would really be, you know, unless it's some kind of like an earth-shattering cataclysm, you know, yeah, there's going to be an initial push of activity where things are really chaotic. But after that, you know, things are going to kind of settle down a little bit. And there could be more activity or more frantic periods later on. But, you know, from what I've seen, real emergencies are not just constant shotgun of information like that. You know, there is a tempo to them. Mm-hmm. So one one last point. We've only got three minutes left, believe it or not. Well, time flies by. Um, can you give a brief chat on crawl, walk, run? I thought that was an interesting little uh, piece, nugget you had at the end of your presentation. Sure. And uh, so crawl, walk, run is uh, kind of the standard terminology for exercise progress. And the idea that you're having a series of exercise activities that take place over a longer period of time. So the way that it's often described is that crawling is kind of the most basic roles and responsibilities and who does what. Walking is kind of a realistic situation. And then running is like that frantic, you know, new thing happening every two minutes. I actually think that's almost too intensive. I think that crawling is those fundamental conversations about can we actually communicate, you know, the most basic processes and examining if the structures and the organization support any kind of communication. And then walking to me is kind of a very low level roles and responsibilities and who does what. And then running is actually, you know, like a a simulated event that is challenging but allows people to realistically wrap their heads around what they would have to do in a disruption. Hmm. So we have two minutes left. Do you, uh, and I'll give you one minute. <laughs> so do you have any closing comments you'd like to say on, uh, on uh, you know, lessons learned uh, and, and um, all of this? Really the, the closing comment that I say to a lot of organizations is that the level of effort and the level of success that you can realistically seek to achieve or hope to achieve in a disruption is probably less than you think it is. And that's okay, but the way that you strengthen that is by taking slow and steady approaches and accepting that it's going to take time to become effective and to get your people trained to a level where they can function effectively in a disruption if you just kind of throw very high-level intensive scenarios at people right away, they're not going to learn, but they're also going to burn out. You know, they're going to think that this is too scary and big and challenging, and they're not going to want to keep doing this kind of stuff. So if you are taking the approach of, you know, having a uh, planning and training program, it's better to just go very slow and work people up from the bottom and just accept that there's going to be limitations because your people are going to be more prepared that way. That's good advice. Hopefully everyone's listening out there. Uh, Douglas, thank you very much for joining us and talking about uh, cybersecurity and crisis management and the incident command uh, system and you know lessons learned and all your uh, ideas and uh, thoughts that you've given us. Thank you very much uh, for joining. Thank you. And I'd like to remind everyone, if there's a topic you want us to talk about, please feel free to send me a note. I'll be in Phoenix on September 24th, we'll be doing a live show and uh, going to Manila, uh, Philippines in uh, mid-November. 
for the 25th Anniversary Teams Conference. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks again, Douglas, for joining. And stay in the meantime, stay prepared, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.